When I was in high school, I played with uh, several guys on a football team in Miami, Florida, Westminster Christian High School, and I had several buddies that I partied with. Well, I graduated, they graduated, we went to separate schools, and when I was in Miami, one particular summer on college break, I went into a place, it was a produce store called Norman Brothers. It's well known in Miami, they sell uh, fruits and vegetables. I wasn't there for the fruits and vegetables, I was there for the milkshakes, because they had tremendous milkshakes there. So I went in, got a milkshake, and on the way out, I ran into one of my football buddies. And it gave me an opportunity to basically talk to him about his faith in Jesus Christ. I had just come from being in a backslidden state. I was on fire for Jesus. I was probably a little bit too brash. But I challenged my friend, because I knew my friend grew up in the church, but I partied with him. He wasn't manifesting spiritual fruit. So I asked him the question, are you really saved? I know you've trusted in Jesus Christ, but where's the fruit in your life? And of course, his response was, well, I know I've asked Jesus to save me. And I explained to him that genuine saving faith produces works or good fruit. And that's what we want to talk about this morning as we continue in our series in the book of James, verse by verse. So turn, if you will, to James chapter 2. We're looking at verses 14 through 26, and the title of this message is Genuine Saving Faith Produces Works or Good Fruit. Now remember, James is a Jewish letter. It was probably the first letter written in the New Testament. James is writing to a group of persecuted Jewish Christians, and he not only comforts them in their affliction, but one of the things that James does is he confronts their sin. And if you remember in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we looked at sinful discrimination. And there, he confronts the poor over their discrimination towards the rich. They were showing preferential treatment towards rich people. Why? Because they wanted to curry their favor. They were poor. Now he turns the tables and he doesn't address the poor, he addresses the rich in verses 14 through 26, and there he's going to confront their easy believism. Many of them were rich, and they said they believed in Jesus. They were Orthodox Jews, but they weren't manifesting works in their life. They weren't helping the poor who were needy. And so 1 through 13, he addresses the poor. 14 through 26, he addresses the rich, because the rich were abusing the poor. They weren't helping them out. And basically what James is going to say here is genuine saving faith produces good works. In fact, he opens up with a question, and he says this in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone, notice the word says, circle that, has faith but does not have works? Can his or that faith save him? And the obvious answer is no. The operative word here is says, because many of these people had made professions of faith. They are the people that are talked about in Matthew chapter 7, which is a scary verse. Jesus said on the day of judgment, many will stand before him. Many will stand before him, religious people. And they will say, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things in your name? Did I not cast out devils? Did I not do miracles? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. I never had an intimate relationship with you. See, James is saying that genuine saving faith is going to produce works. And he says there's a lot of people that say they have faith, 
but they don't have genuine works to demonstrate that their faith is real. And by the way, this is a problem in the American church, and here's the reason why. We live in a country where the gospel is pushed all the time, religion is pushed all the time. You have it in television, you have it in social media, you have it in books, you have it in classes. And so there is this easy believism that is rampant within the American church. There's a lot of people that have prayed a prayer when they were younger. They walked an aisle at the Billy Graham crusade. They went to a youth retreat through a pine cone in the fire and said they pledged their life to Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. There's a whole glut of people that say they believe, but you don't see any fruit in their life. Ostensibly, they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but the pattern of their life is they're indifferent, they're not in the Word, they're not in prayer. Some of them are partying on the weekends, they're living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, they're smoking pot, getting drunk, engaging in immorality. Or some of them are just indifferent, they're not living immoral lives, they're just, they're not really bearing fruit. And so the question that you and I struggle with, and we've all encountered these types of people is, are they really saved? Because they parrot the right words, but I don't see the fruit in their life. And James says, genuine saving faith produces works. Now, don't misunderstand. Works do not save us. They give evidence that we are saved. Let me say it this way. Faith is the root. Good works are the fruit. There are many different beliefs as to how a person gets saved, and you've probably heard a number of these. Let me give you the three. Number one, works equals salvation. There are those who teach that if you're good enough, God will weigh your good against your bad. If your good outweighs your bad, you will get to heaven. Islam is known for that. In fact, all world religions teach some form of work salvation. We know that the Bible contradicts that. We're not saved by our works. Then there are those who are religious who teach that it's faith plus works equals salvation, primarily the Catholic Church. You got to believe in Jesus. You got to be baptized as an infant in order to experience baptismal regeneration. But then you got to cooperate with the Spirit by keeping the sacraments. And then ultimately, you don't know if you're really saved at the end. And you have to have your sins purged by going to purgatory. See, that whole system is a faith works system. The Bible cancels that out because we cannot add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, the biblical view and the view that James is teaching in verses 14 through 26 is that we're saved by faith alone. The reformers called it sola fide in the Latin. Faith alone, that was the battle cry of the Reformation, but faith alone produces, here it is, salvation plus good works. Good works do not save me, but they are a byproduct that I'm genuinely saved. For example, take a pregnant woman. When a woman gets pregnant, hopefully by her husband, she has new life in her. Now what happens? Over time, that new life begins to manifest itself, right? A woman who says she's pregnant, but she never shows it over time, is probably not pregnant. So it is with our faith. The Bible says that when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if it's genuine saving faith, you have new life in you. The Bible says the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of you. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. Listen, how can that not manifest itself and show itself by the good works that you produce? And so James says, it's faith alone that saves us, but good works are the byproduct to demonstrate that our faith is genuine saving faith. Now, what James is going to do is give us five examples to prove to us 
that true faith produces good works. But before we get into those examples this morning, I want to touch on the fact that there is a controversy in this passage in verses 14 through 26 of James. Some people think that Paul in Romans chapter 4 is in contradiction to James chapter 2. For example, there are those who say that in Romans chapter 4, Paul says that we're saved by faith alone, whereas in James, we are saved by faith and works. And so that they say the two passages are incongruous with one another, there is a conflict there. Well, the answer is there is no conflict between James chapter 2 and Romans chapter 4 because if the Bible is the inspired Word of God, God cannot be fork-tongued. There is no contradiction in the Scripture. God does not contradict Himself. So how do we harmonize Romans chapter 4 and James chapter 2? Let me put them on the screen for you, and I'll show you the contradiction that is often talked about between these two passages. In Romans chapter 4, Paul makes it very clear that we are saved by faith alone. Notice what he says in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You could boast about how good you are, but God doesn't accept your good works as a means of salvation. And then he quotes Genesis 15, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice Abraham was clearly in the Old Testament saved by faith. He believed in God's promise. Jesus hadn't come yet, but he believed in the limited promise of God and God made Abraham righteous. So Paul makes it clear unequivocally, Romans 4, that we're saved by faith alone. But notice James chapter 2, James seems to contradict this and he seems to indicate we're saved by faith and works. Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That seems to contradict what he just said in Romans 4. That is Paul. James says, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And then he sums it up and he says in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what? Works and not by faith alone. You say, time out. Paul said in Romans 4, we're saved by faith alone. And he used Abraham as the example, but here he's using Abraham as an example. And he says, we're not justified by work. Uh, we're justified by works and not by faith alone. Which one is it? Catholics love to use this verse and they say, hey, you Protestants got it wrong. This whole thing of the Reformation, we're saved by faith alone, they say James contradicts that. James says we're saved by faith and works. Well, the two passages do not contradict one another. They're not mutually exclusive. Rather, they are mutually compatible to one another. And the simple answer is this. Paul is saying we're saved by faith alone, but James is saying if your faith is genuine saving faith, it will produce fruit. It will produce good works. In fact, the diagram up on the screen shows you the differences between James and Paul. In James chapter 2, James is focusing in on not the root of salvation, but the fruit of salvation. He's saying that if you're truly saved, you're going to produce the fruit of obedience. On the other hand, in Romans chapter 4, Paul is dealing with the root of salvation, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ. In James, he's dealing with the Jewish libertine. What is the Jewish libertine? That's a person who says, 
I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, but you don't see any works in their life. Remember in chapter 1 of James, he said, be doers of the word and not hearers. That was the problem he was dealing with, with the rich who were Jewish. They were libertines. Well, I believe in Jesus, but I could do whatever I want. On the other hand, in Romans chapter 4, Paul is not dealing with the libertine, he's dealing with the legalist. The Jewish legalist said, I got to do all these good works to get saved. And Paul says, no, good works don't save you. It's faith alone that saves you. Good works are a byproduct. And then finally, James uses the word justification in the passage I just read to refer to vindication. In other words, when he says Abraham was justified by his works, what that word justify means is he was vindicated by his works. On the other hand, in Romans chapter 4, Paul uses the word justification to refer to salvation, not vindication. So these two passages are not hopelessly in conflict with one another. They are mutually compatible with one another. Now, as we embark upon this text, James is going to give us five examples of how genuine saving faith produces good works. The first example is a needy believer, a needy believer. This is a negative example, but nevertheless, it is an example. Notice what he says in verses 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, in other words, the basic necessities of life, this would be needs, not greeds. And one of you says to them, in verse 16, who is this person who says to them, probably the rich? Go in peace. This was a Jewish farewell blessing. Go in peace. Keep warm. Hey, man, brother, eat well. But you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? And then he says in verse 17 in the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Now, these rich people were claiming to be orthodox in their faith. They believed in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They ostensibly believed in Jesus Christ, but they were totally indifferent to the poor. They were abusing him in chapter 5, not paying their wages when they mowed their fields. And so James says, wait a minute, you got a brother who is struggling with a subsistence living, the basic necessities of life, and if you say to them, hey, be well fed, be well clothed, God bless you, brother or sister, he's saying, where's the works in your life? And so here is what James is saying through this needy believer. If a person claims to have genuine saving faith, watch this, but they are indifferent towards those in need, they live a self-centered life as a lifestyle, they don't help the poor, they don't help the needy, they have no compassion, you need to question whether or not that person is saved. Now, I didn't say they were not saved because ultimately I don't know. If they give the right words, hey, I believe in Jesus Christ, and maybe they're indifferent to the needs of other people. Maybe they're saved and they're just being disobedient Christians. I don't know. But I do know this, a genuinely saved person is going to have a love for other people. Romans chapter 5 says that when you come to Christ, the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. And that love is going to manifest itself through your life. You can't meet everyone's need. You got to be discerning. And it's not saying that if you're ever selfish, you better examine yourself to see if you're really saved. Obviously, we all are selfish and we can't meet everyone's need. But if I don't show love for other people by meeting their needs, I need to check the foundation to see whether or not I have genuine saving faith. Why? Because true saving faith manifests itself in a love for other people. 
Listen to what 1 John says. John doesn't mince any words. In chapter 3, John says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. How do I know I'm a Christian? Because I have a love for other people. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining within him. And so love is one of the proofs that I've genuinely be saved. Now, do we love perfectly? Absolutely not. We all have to grow in our love. Now, in one sense, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that no one has to teach us how to love. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we love instinctively. Why? Because God's love's been shed abroad in our heart, and it's natural for Christians to love. It's one of the manifestations that I have a new nature. But that love is dynamic. It needs to grow. I need to cultivate it. I grew up, as you know, in Miami, and I went to a church. I dated the pastor's daughter, which is kind of dangerous to do. And uh, anyway, I went to college. We broke up, and I stayed in touch with uh, my former girlfriend's father. And uh, he's the one who got me to move back to Miami and get my undergraduate degree in Bible college. And he told me his testimony. He said, Mike, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were committed Christians, he said, but I went my own way and I became a drunk. He got married, had a child, and he would go off in drunken binges, wouldn't show up for a week. His life was destroyed. And he says, I was at my parents' house one night and I was going to end it all. He says, I was in a back room and I had a shotgun and I was getting ready to shoot myself and commit suicide. And so finally, he said, all right, Lord, if you're real, he said, I surrender myself to you. And he said, something broke in that moment. In fact, he said, my parents were in the other room. When I opened the door, he said, their mouths dropped because he said, something happened to me and they could see it on my countenance. They could see it physically. And he said, you know what, Mike? One of the proofs that I knew I was saved is I had a total transformation and a love for other people. He said, on my job, I, I wanted to help other people. I wanted to give to those in need. I loved people. He said it was a marked difference before I came to Jesus Christ. And that's what James is saying. He's not saying we're going to do it perfectly, but a person who says, oh, I'm a believer, but they have no compassion for the poor, no compassion for needy. They don't want to serve. They don't want to get involved. They live self-centered lives. You better examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And as I said, you can't help everybody, but we don't want to do what this picture shows. I put this on Facebook. You'll notice the picture up on the screen. You see it says, dude, I'll pray about it. And you see that person drowning. Too often in the church today, we often say we'll pray about it when God really wants us to help that person. Now again, there is a place to pray because we can't help everybody. God doesn't expect us to help everybody, but one of the marks of genuine salvation, genuine faith in Jesus Christ, is it will manifest itself in me loving others and serving others and giving to other people. There's a second example that James uses here to demonstrate that true saving faith produces works, and that is an imaginary antagonist, an imaginary antagonist. Notice what he says in verse 18. But someone will say, there's the imaginary opponent or antagonist. Someone will say, now this could be one of the rich people in the congregation, we don't know, and here is what this imaginary opponent said, hey James, you have faith and I have works. And James responds to this imaginary antagonist and says to him, 
Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. What is he talking about here? Well, this imaginary protagonist is basically saying there are two types of people. There are faith people and there are works people. Who are the faith people? These are people that believe in God, believe in Jesus Christ. They have orthodox theology. They're correct in all that they say about the Bible, but they don't really show any good works in their life. Those are faith people. And by the way, the American church is glutted with these types of people. On the other hand, the, uh, James says there are works people. This is what the antagonist is saying. There are also works people. These are people that basically do good works, but it's not attached to any faith in Jesus Christ. For example, you know Bill Gates and Melinda Gates. They started the Gates Foundation, and they've poured billions of dollars into this foundation. It's basically to help people across the world with poverty and with medicine. To some degree, we would all say, well, that's a good thing. That's a philanthropic thing. Or take uh, Hugh Grant. Remember when that tsunami came? I think it was in the 90s, or early 2000s. Remember it hit Asia? I remember they did a whole thing on television to raise money for the victims of the tsunami. And Hugh Grant said, you know, normally I don't give to anything. He says, but I'm going to give to this. Listen, both of them are philanthropic, but it's not tied to faith in Jesus Christ. And so you have works people who do all these works, but it's not pointing back to Jesus Christ. On the other hand, you have these faith people that believe in Jesus. They're orthodox, but they don't do any good works. And so this imaginary antagonist is creating this scenario, well, you have faith and I have works. And James says, no, the two go together. The two are not mutually exclusive. They are compatible to one another because look what he says, Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. In other words, James is saying this, you may have faith in Jesus Christ, but I can't see your faith. When a person believes, I don't know what's in their heart, I can't see what's going on in their mind and on the inside of them. How do I know their faith is genuine? Only God knows that. He's privy to that information because he's omniscient. But what I can see is a person's works. Faith is invisible, good works are visible. And so James says, look, there aren't faith people and works people. The two are not mutually exclusive. He says they're mutually compatible. If I have genuine faith, how do I manifest that my faith is genuine, but it's the fact that I produce good works in my life? And you see, there's a lot of people that say they have faith, but they have no good works. I was recently watching, if you've never seen it, it's a biography that just came out on Johnny Cash. How many of you like Johnny Cash? Do you remember his music? I didn't see what the big deal was about this guy, and then after listening for a little bit, I thought, yeah, his music has a good catch to it. Well, Johnny Cash grew up in the church. His brother died in an accident. His brother was going to be a preacher. Johnny Cash knew the truth, but I don't believe he was saved. He knew it intellectually, but he didn't know it experientially. Johnny Cash, as you know, got caught up in that whole industry, got addicted to opioids, and the biography says that he ended up crawling into this cave. He went deep into the cave, and he sat curled up in a fetal position, crying, wanting to end his life, and he felt like God said to him in that moment, I am not done with you. And he said that sparked him to crawl out of the cave, and he went to church with his wife, and the preacher, they interviewed him, gave an invitation one Sunday. 
And Johnny Cash and his family came forward and he expressed faith in Jesus Christ. Now that faith, who could see that faith? Obviously he verbally said it, but no one knew what was in his heart. But following that experience, that Sunday at church, Johnny Cash was a changed man. My mouth dropped. From that point on, Johnny Cash had a zeal for God. He was studying the Bible. He was doing all these good works. He was preaching his faith to other people in the music industry. He became very close with Billy Graham. Him and Billy Graham would go together on vacation. Johnny Cash manifested his faith by the changed life that he exhibited before other people. And that's what James is saying to this imaginary antagonist. There are no faith people and works people. I have faith, but I don't have works. Or I have works, but I don't have faith. James says, no, the two go together. You can't have one without the other. Faith alone saves me, but if it's genuine saving faith, it will produce good works. There's a third example that James gives us here to show us that genuine saving faith produces good works, and that is demonic spirits. Demonic spirits. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says to these Jewish people, you believe that God is one, you do well. Now, this was a common Jewish belief. It's called the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jewish people would uh, repeat this all the time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And by the way, it's talking about the unity of God. We worship as Christians one God. Muslims worship one God. It's a false God but they worship one God, and then Judaism worship one God. Those are the three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so the Jews believe that God is one. By the way, interesting, the word one there, if you go back to Deuteronomy, the word one in the Hebrew implies plurality. And so as Christians, we embrace the Trinity. There is plurality within oneness. God is one God, but There is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God with three distinct personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he says to these Jewish people, he says, look, you believe that God is one? He says, you do good. But notice he indicts them when he says this, the demons also believe and they shudder. He says, foolish man, you idiot. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is what? useless. And so the third example he gives is demonic spirits. And here's his point. Demonic spirits believe just like Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews had correct theology. They believed in God. They believed in the Shema. They believed in the sacred scriptures. But guess what? He says the demons believe as well. You know, demons have intellectual faith. And by the way, demons not only have intellectual faith, and they have more faith than atheists. Because demons were once angels that worshiped God, so they're familiar with that. They have orthodox theology. And listen, demons are even emotionally involved. It says that they shudder. They bristle. Why? Because they know that they're going to be cast in the lake of fire. He says, look, you believe, you intellectually agree with right theology. He says, so what? He says the demons believe intellectually and emotionally, but guess what? Demons are not going to heaven. They are going to the lake of fire. Why? Because they produce bad fruit. And so there are many in the church today that have demon faith. What's demon faith? Well, one of my roommates in college, his father-in-law, he was telling me one day, he said he loved to listen to Charles Stanley. He would watch him religiously. 
He believed all that he said. And he said, even emotionally, he responded to Charles Stanley. But you know what he said to me? He said, my father-in-law is still not saved. He's never, by an act of his will, received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Intellectual faith is not enough to save you. Agreeing with the facts and even emotionally responding to those facts, having a religious experience is not enough to save you. And that's the scary thing. Saving faith involves the mind, the emotions, and the what? Will. It says in John chapter 1, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. You got to believe it here. You got to be convicted emotionally of your sins, but you must activate your will and personally ask Jesus Christ to save you of your sin. And he's saying to these Jewish rich people, he's saying, look, you believe you have orthodox theology. He says, you're no different than the demons. And listen, in the American church today, there are a lot of people that have grown up in the church. They have intellectual faith. Some of them may have had an emotional experience, but they've never asked Christ to save them, and you don't see fruit in their life. Now, here's the danger, and this is where it gets tricky, where I can't sort this out. Sometimes people seem to have fruit, but it's plastic fruit. You ever seen that plastic fruit on a kitchen table? It looks real, it looks genuine, but when you go up to it, it's plastic fruit. There are some people that say they believe in Jesus, and they're moral people, and they seem to be producing fruit, but it's plastic fruit. They're religious. You say, well, Mike, how do you ultimately know? Well, listen, ultimately, God is the one who knows, but if you're truly saved, you're going to see genuine spiritual fruit. You say, well, Mike, how much fruit does a person have to bear to show that they're genuinely saved? And by the way, when I say the word fruit, I'm talking about results. I'm talking about impact. How much fruit does a person have to manifest to show that their faith is genuine saving faith? Here's the answer. I don't know. I can't quantify that for you. Look at the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross had little fruit, but he had fruit. The thief, both of them were initially mocking Jesus, and then one of them got convicted. And here was the fruit that he truly believed Jesus was the Son of God. He said to the other thief, we are getting what we deserve. Leave this man alone. That was the first sign that he had conviction. He had contrition over his sin. And then verbally, which by the way, what comes out of your mouth represents what's in your heart. He said, Lord, he says, Remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, it came out of his mouth that he was a genuine believer and that was the fruit. That was little fruit. Some people bear a lot of fruit. But listen, you got to have some fruit to show that you're saved. And listen, I know for me, when I got saved, I had a radical transformation. There was fruit in my life, no doubt about it. But you know what happened to me? My senior year... I wasn't discipled like I should have been. I hung around the wrong friends on my football team, and you know what I did? I went back to partying. I went back to drinking. I went back to carousing. I went back to all that stuff. And you know what? For two years, I was in rebellion towards God. Two years, I knew I was doing wrong. I had good fruit at one point, but I backslid. But you know what? I came back to God. So it is possible for a person to be saved and to have some fruit but if they're not careful and they're not cultivating their walk with God, they can backslide against God. You say, well, Mike, how do I handle this? I've got a child 
who's at home or away, they used to come here or they went to another church and they professed faith in Christ. But as soon as they got to college or as soon as they got married, they walked away from the church. Are they saved? Or I'm married to a spouse who says they believe intellectually. Maybe emotionally they feel convicted. No fruit in their life. They'll tell you they've trusted in Jesus Christ, but you see no evidence. Are they saved? Here's the answer. I don't know. Only God knows the heart. But here's what I say to people who say they're saved, but you don't see any fruit in their life. Here's what I don't say to them. You're not saved. Unless they reject Jesus Christ, if someone rejects Christ, I can say to them, you're not saved based on the authority of the Word of God. But if they say they believe in Jesus Christ, but there's no fruit in their life, I don't tell them you're not saved. Why? Because I don't have the authority to do that. God sees their heart, and He knows whether or not they're really saved. But let me tell you what I also don't tell them. Ah, you're a Christian. You're saved. You're probably just backslidden. Mm-mm. Because I could be giving them false assurance. And we don't want to give people false assurance. So I don't tell them you're not saved, but I don't tell them they are saved. Here's what I tell them. You may be saved, you may not be, I don't know. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And listen, that's what you do to your child. That's what you do to your coworker, your spouse. Yeah, you give me the right words, but where's the fruit in your life? Because James says it's possible to have demonic faith. You could believe the facts, you can emotionally be exhilarated, but you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. And so three examples James gives us, we'll pick up the next two next time, but he uses a needy believer. Secondly, he uses an imaginary antagonist. And thirdly, he uses demonic spirits to show us that genuine saving faith produces good works. So let me ask you as we close this morning, are you saved? Of course I'm saved. I come to church. Mm -hmm. Do you realize that hell is going to be populated with churchgoers? Hell is going to be populated with religious people. Here's the question. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and do you see evidence in your life? With all heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're not sure that you're a believer this morning, and I'm going to have the worship team come up, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and let me just say this. I'm not against prayers, but the prayer itself will not save you. It's whether or not you meet it in your heart. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ by an act of your will, I want to invite you this morning to ask Him to save you. Pray this prayer after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you as a sinner. I have sinned against you, and I have broken your law, and I deserve hell. But you said in your word, that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. I believe that. And I ask you right now, Jesus, to save me. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and make me a new person. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, talk to me afterwards. I would love to speak with you. Come back next week. We're going to look at two other examples that James gives. He's going to use Abraham from the Old Testament, and he's going to use another Old Testament example, Rahab, to show that true saving faith produces works. Let's stand together as we worship our great God. And as you go out this week, spread the good news of Jesus Christ to others. Let's be a church that lets others see our good works, Matthew 5, before others, that they may know that we worship our true God. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.